Culture 3 learned jujitsu and <laughs> held the whole lab hostage. I mean, my dissertation was funny, but in a dark comedy way, as in it wasn't funny at all. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, did you hear the one about the scientist who started a stand-up comedy group? Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 82. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. I saw a zombie meteorologist the other day. <laughs> he said it was cloudy with a chance of brains. See, it's a joke, and it's also Halloween. <laughs> Welcome back, Dan. Josh, good to see you. I was going to say this is our last show before Halloween, but... Uh, there are no promises we get this posted before Halloween, but right now it is right before Halloween. Hopefully everyone's having a very spooky time. That's right. We've got a few firsts in this episode. I think this is going to be our first ever on location live beer drinking segment. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, we're always on location in the studio. Is that what you mean? That's true. But tonight we are not going to drink a beer here in the studio. I'm sorry, Dan. It's all right. But we're going to play some audio from this weekend when we sampled a beer I have been trying to track down for two years at the brewery. The next step in our IPA freefall. And now, thanks to the magic of editing, we are going to immediately transport to the brewery. Hi, Dan. Hey, Josh. Where are we? Uh, we are at Mystery Brewing in Hillsborough, North Carolina. Beautiful Hillsborough on the back patio. On the back patio. It is a nice it's October day. It's 80 today? Yeah, it's a little warm, actually. I, I get more and more concerned slash annoyed for our environment. Every 80-degree day, we tack on to late October. But, hey, short sleeves, sitting outside. Uh, but the reason what, what we're here... What brings us here, Josh? Yeah, so I think this is our first ever live beer tasting segment. Okay. Yeah, and the reason we're doing this is there's a beer I've been trying to track down for two years. They don't bottle it, so the only way we can get this beer is to be here right now. On-site live. On-site live. So we're at Mystery Brewing, Hillsborough, North Carolina, and I got word from a friend who was here Thursday that the Dromgul Pumpkin Pie Ale is on draft and will probably run out this weekend. So that's why we had to get out here. And why are we excited about a pumpkin ale? They are, okay. they are everywhere this season. You know I love pumpkin pie. I think listeners of the show, long-time listeners, are aware of that, correct? Correct. But I don't like pumpkin ale. Yeah, not usually. And you feel that way too, right? You're like not a pumpkin, pumpkin spice ale. lattes and pumpkin spice. It's just like, yeah. it's a... A gimmick, not a beer flavor. Well, this is the only beer I know of in which the beer is brewed with whole pumpkin pies. Like with the actual crust in it? Yeah. So I follow these guys on social media, and they literally throw whole baked pumpkin pies into the brew. While it's boiling? Uh, We don't know. You know, I'm not sure what step they throw it in, uh, but this is not just the spice, not just the pumpkin puree, whole pies. Uh, let me describe what we're seeing here. This is a very, very dark beer. I don't know what style it is, other than the fact that it contains pumpkin pies, but it's porter dark. I it's, would say. Yeah, it says it's an ale and five uh, percent ABV. And it had another feature when they first pulled it out of the tap, was a nice thick um, head on top, which was good because the door hit my arm on the way out, and that kind of like damped the shock, and I didn't spill it. Yeah, I actually did. But that's all gone now. I actually did observe that happen, and 
uh, I caught my, my breath in my throat, yeah. and I thought you were going to spill the sweet nectar of this. Okay, but that is, that is all. It's not uh, like a Guinness. It's not. Let's we'll see if we can smell some pumpkin pie here. Uh, I'm getting no pumpkin pie smell. Zero. Zero. The, the brewery smells like pumpkin pie today, but I don't smell it on the beer. Well, and I'll say what I'm smelling is a uh, charred meat because there's a barbecue restaurant right next door. Yeah, so, the, right, well, let's try it. I've been waiting two yeah. years to try this. First note is sweet. Effervescence is light. Oh, that small bubbles. I get zero pumpkin pie flavor. You getting any? Yeah, I gotta say, uh, this reminds me of maybe a maybe a brown ale. Yeah, a brown or even a black ale if you've had a black ale before. But I gotta say, I agree, Dan. I in is no that, way would that, say pumpkin pie. Is that good or bad for you? Are you I love pumpkin are you pie. More happy or more sad about uh, this? I was really hoping to detect pumpkin pie flavor. This is like when they opened Al Capone's vault and there was nothing inside. <laughs> but you know, I said that anytime a beer claims to be a flavored beer of some sort, I want to at least taste that flavor. Uh, I'm really getting no pumpkin pie here. I'm not getting pumpkin pie either, although that might be a selling point for me. The the flavor of this, the smoothness, the lightness, even though it's a it's a dark beer, it's it doesn't feel heavy, it doesn't feel thick. And so I actually like it okay. Yeah, no that that is true. Don't don't mischaracterize my response as saying this is a bad beer. It just uh, does not taste like there are a whole pumpkin pie. Maybe I got the wrong one. There were probably 20 taps in there. I don't know, but happy with the beer, but a little disappointed in the lack of pumpkin pie flavoring. Well, anyway, Dan, this was our live beer tasting segment, and so we will use the magic of editing, and next thing you know, listeners, we're going to be back in the studio. The verdict, tasty beer, doesn't taste like pumpkin pie. No. And we're back. Comedian, <laughs> Foley artist. And Dan, here we are, back in the studio again. What an adventure. <laughs> what an anticlimax. Uh, I felt bad for you. I really did. I'm still disappointed. I've told so many people about my excitement for trying that beer. I was looking forward to it all day that day. I know what I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to mention this, but... We did have a really delicious blood orange IPA as well. It was really good. Not allowed to talk not, about it though. So if I were talking about it, the blood orange IPA was fantastic. I was so disappointed that the beer did not taste like pumpkin pie that I literally went back inside to the bartender to get, because Dan, you bought the beers the first time, to get a sample of the pumpkin pie beer in the slim chance that maybe they poured the wrong one the first time. It was the correct one. Yeah. So I thought you were going to say, I was so disappointed that it didn't taste like pumpkin pie that I went home and ate six pumpkin pies. <laughs> All right, Dan, ready for some science in the news? Hit me with the science. Okay, in honor of my scientific background, this is a bacteriology science in the news. We do love some bacteria here on Hello PhD. We're going to talk a little bit about a paper that was published in Nature just this last week. I probably have not read it yet. Yeah, and this, this actually brings in two things that I particularly am interested in. One is bacteriology. Two are projects that take place over many, many years. Okay, isn't that all projects? Mine took five and a half. Yours took five-ish. I mean like this. So um, a couple movies that I find really fascinating. Are you familiar with with the Up series documentary? I am not. Yeah, so there's this British documentary, and it's called the Up series. The first one was called Seven Up. And so what the filmmaker did was they wanted to track what it was like to grow up in the UK. And I believe the first one started maybe in the 60s. And so they they took these 12 or so 
seven-year-olds from different socioeconomic groups, different parts of the country, and just talked about what their life was like. And then seven years later, they did 14 up, and then 21 up, then 28 up, then 35 up. And I think they're on 42 up now. With the same cohort of kids that are now adults. That's right. And and that's just... dedication. Yeah, the commitment to that is just inherently interesting to me. Um, another one might be familiar with Dan, one that is a little more well-known here is the movie Boyhood. Yeah, that came out just a few years ago, right? It did, yeah. And so uh, I think it won the Cannes Film Festival Award in 2014. But that movie, not quite as long-term as the as the Up series, but it was filmed from 2002 to 2013. And it, it depicts the childhood and adolescence of this this boy from ages six to eighteen when he starts college. But the cool part about it is, it's the same actors in real time. And so, in two thousand two, when it was filmed, the kid who played the main character was six, and they filmed a few weeks of the year every year as the characters actually got older. Yeah, they're actually aging on screen yeah. as you watch them. Yeah, like how cool is that? Real dedication. Um, Vision. I, I saw a documentary by or featuring the filmmaker once. I've never actually seen the movie, but I was fascinated enough. Just the the commitment that the cast has to take to say, okay, look, we don't know exactly what this movie is going to be about, but stick with us for 13 or 14 years and you'll find out. But anyway, that is the similar interest that I had when I uh, read That's about this. That's you bringing it to my level, right? <laughs> That's right. That's going to be a theme today. I'm trying to connect with the audience mm-hmm. here. So that's the same interest that I have for this study when, when I read about it this week. And so this study was called The Dynamics of Molecular Evolution Over 60,000 Generations. Oh my gosh, that's so many generations. Yeah, that's a lot. They set it up for me. What was the experiment? Okay, so what the experiment was, in February of 1988, a scientist named Richard Lenski at Michigan State seeded 12 flasks with the bacteria E. coli, and he put them in the incubator to shake overnight at 37 degrees. Have you done this before? So many times. Yeah, yeah. you put a little bit of your bacteria in there, you put it in the warm incubator, and you shake it, then the next day you come in and you got this nice flask. And I think anybody who's done this can call to mind at any moment they want to the aroma of the LB before Mm -hmm. and after. Mm -hmm. Disgusting. It's not that bad, bad, but it's just like, it's one of those those scents that you get in the lab and you don't get anywhere else. Yeah, that's right. But one thing he did is he was interested in putting some selective pressure on these bacteria. So he seeded them with only enough nutrients that they could grow until the next morning. So um, specifically glucose. He only gave them enough glucose. Yeah, because I don't want to get up at the crack of dawn to get into the lab. I want to wait until mid-afternoon. Getting up to feed the chicken at the crack of dawn. Right, yeah. you know? No, you don't want to do that. Uh, but what he did was uh, w- was just enough glucose that they could only survive till the next morning. They would use it all up. But here's where it's interesting. So every afternoon since February 24th, 1988, he or someone in the lab took a sample of those bacteria, put it in a new flask, grew it overnight, and did that over and over again. And every 75 days, what they would do is they would actually store some of that culture in the freezer. And and so what they were trying to do was see how these starvation conditions would be a pressure for evolution. And what they could look at was over time, over a large number of generations, and apparently every 75 days, that's approximately 500 bacterial generations, they could in long term mirror how evolution happens 
um, under a consistent selective pressure. So this was all they were using those bacteria for. They they grew them every single day since 1988 just for this experiment. They weren't trying to use them for some other process. And they would and they would freeze them down every 75 days. So how many years is that? That's oh my uh, gosh, that's incredible. They're, 30 years almost. I'm I'm just picturing inside these flasks like the Roman Empire of bacteria has risen and fallen. There are these huge societal changes going on in the bacteria. They they must have evolved into people by now, right? <laughs> well, anyone keeping score at home, that's approximately 68,000 generations. That's so many generations. Okay, so I hope after all these years and all this time that something amazing happened because otherwise we're going to have our second uh, strikeout of the episode. Well, one thing that was interesting is if there was a hypothesis for, because let's think about what this what this is simulating, Right, is it's it's simulating any org- organism that is living somewhere that's fairly stable. So there is this selective pressure of you know there's not unlimited nutrients, but everything else is pretty perfect. So so you might imagine, okay, well, sixty thousand generations in the first maybe five hundred or so generations, the bacteria are going to adapt all they need to adapt to be more efficient at metabolizing this glucose. Then since nothing's changed in thirty years, they're going to be preset like in the final 55,000 generations. I expect them to be sentient by now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> They're writing computer code. They actually are, are running Dr. Linsky's lab at this point. <laughs> I just need to throw in here, somebody on one of these days over the last 40 years or however long they've been doing this forgot. And <laughs> they went over and they kind of like scraped their shoe and inoculated <laughs> something and got a new thing started. I right? mean, it's pretty compelling to think that. I mean, can you remember where you were in 1988? I was yeah. in the third grade. Yeah, there, there's a point at which you don't trust anybody in the lab to get this right. Or the power goes out or something has to happen, right? I mean, it's just interesting to think about any day that you have lived since that day in 1988. Someone in the Linsky lab got up, put their shoes on. This is Michigan. Christmas right? Day. Thanksgiving. <laughs> Drove through the bitter cold, turned on the lights, looked for their ID card to get into the building, turned on the lights, went into the room, took a big whiff of that aroma that you know so well. No way. Somebody forgot one time, I swear. <laughs> and it's like when the goldfish dies, you buy another goldfish and try not to let the kids notice. That's what happened. Well, anyway, Dan, regardless, some surprising things they found. As you mentioned, too, they're actually not, they didn't just have one flask. They actually had 12 different cultures going. There's so much autoclaving going on in the Linsky lab. <laughs> so I pulled figure two, Dan. I got figure two up here. Uh, figure two D. Here's all these different cultures they had. And they're plotting the the number of, I guess, kind of mutations over time in these different cultures. And what was crazy is it was really different from flask to flask, from culture to culture. So if I'm reading this correctly, some went lots and lots of generations with very little change. And and later they, they kind of spiked up. Others immediately started to, to change and every generation kept changing. Yeah. And you can see, Dan, that, that some of these went for a really, really long time being very stable, and then rocketed up. And that's kind of one of the things they found was eventually... That's where the guy lost <laughs> the culture and put in a different... He's like, oh, Flask 2 seems pretty good. Let me inoculate that <laughs> into the here. the alternate hypothesis. One of the examples that, that they actually talked about, one of the strains at some point became able to metabolize citrate. And speak in full sentences. <laughs> and so once it became able to do that, then that led to this sudden spike uh, in rapid evolution and mutations as that process became more efficient. 
Culture 3 learned jujitsu and <laughs> held the whole lab hostage. And Culture 7 became president of the United States. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Dan, uh, I have to admit, my main interest in this was just the fact that this has been going on so long. No, that is inherently kudos interesting to them. To That's me. awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, but but from the researcher's perspective and those who think a lot about how uh, evolution works and selective pressure works, what they said from this paper, our data suggests together these results show that long-term adaptation to a constant environment can be a more complex and dynamic process than is often assumed. I know, Dan, you assumed that it was not a complex and dynamic process. And it turns out it is. I mean, you may be able to translate this to evolution in general, right? Yeah, and, and you know, I think sometimes when we think about evolution, and when I say we, I mean maybe those of us who aren't day-to-day evolutionary biologists, but you know, we'll think about, oh, the ice age happened, and so then this major change in the environment occurred, and there was lots of rapid changes in evolution. But what this states is there's really a lot of pretty significant changes that pop up and occur even when an organism has this long-term exposure to a really constant surrounding. That was a new discovery. I can't wait to see how humans look after our 68,000th generation. (laughs) If we were to just come downstairs and watch Netflix every day for... 68,000 generations. 68,000 generations. Eventually, we'd learn to metabolize citrate. There you go. (laughs) All right, Josh. Thank you for the science. All right, Dan. So today's topic is one that I'm really excited about. So we're going to talk to a scientist, and her name is Nikki Speich. And she has done something that I think is is really unique and really cool. She started an opportunity for scientists to do stand-up comedy. I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> I thought you said stand-up comedy. That was the thing, but I'm sure that you did not say that. That's what I said, Dan. Stand-up comedy. And this organization is called The Peer Review. That's R-E-V-U-E. Oh. I get it. That's pretty great. That's a great title. So yeah, Dan, she's going to tell us a little bit about what the peer review is, why she started it, and why stand-up comedy could be a good thing for scientists to learn how to do. Let's listen. Hello. My name is Nikki Spahich, and I'm a microbiologist. So that means that I am fascinated by all the tiny unseen things in this world that can kill us. And they're all around us. They are growing in our intestines, crawling on our skin. No wait, sit back down. When it comes to infectious disease, we humans for all time have been trying to do whatever we can to save ourselves. And we've done some fucked up shit. Sometimes it's worked, and lots of times it has not. So we used to have this idea that disease was spread through bad smells. On the flip side, there was this idea that maybe a different bad smell could beat the disease smell. So you could maybe take your average household items like farts in a jar. (laughs) I'm serious, medieval Europeans would fart in jars and save it for later. So antibiotics are produced by bacteria and fungi to combat each other. And most of these species are in the soil. Problem with soil microbes is that they're really picky about their diet, taken from the ground into the lab, and it's as if my husband got trapped in a vegan restaurant. (laughs) Well, looks like I'm gonna die in here. (laughs) 
Nothing to eat. Yeah. I've had a good run. Hi, I'm Dr. Nikki Spahich. I am currently an assisting teaching professor at Penn State Erie, and I am the co-founder of The Peer Review. Just tell us a little bit about your background that led you, that kind of led up to becoming involved with The Peer Review. Well, I was a genetics major in both undergrad and grad school, and I kind of realized at some point during my grad school and postdoc that I've been doing science outreach informally pretty much the whole time without meaning to. And I really liked getting out there and talking to non-scientists of all ages about science. So I moved to Colorado, and I met another fellow science enthusiast named Kyle Sanders. And while we were out there together, we decided to embark on this project to teach scientists and STEM professionals how to be amusing, to be good storytellers um, through the medium of stand-up comedy. Yeah, that's really cool. What... What made you choose stand-up hang on, comedy? Hang on, hang on, hang on. So, <laughs> this is the most unexpected combination of things that I maybe I could put together. So, I've got science on one hand and I've got stand-up comedy on the other. These are totally different worlds. Yeah, but, you know, it works. And What, what made you think of, of putting these two things together? Yeah, yeah, had you done big... stand-up comedy before? Are you a big fan of George Carlin? Like, how did you come to this? Yeah, why stand-up comedy? That was a big question I had. So this is kind of an offshoot of something they do in the UK that has recently moved to Ireland and Australia called the Bright Club, a playoff of Fight Club. And it started at University College London and is now done all across uh, those countries where they put scientists up on stage. Sometimes they give them a little comedy training. Sometimes they just throw them up there. And they just put on in, like informal science comedy nights. And it's been going on, uh, I think, since maybe 2009, maybe before that even. Um, And so my colleague, Kyle Sanders, my co-founder, heard about this program, got in touch with uh, University College London, and basically got the green light to try this in the United States. So we believe that we're the first people who have done this exact format. We decided that American STEM professionals probably would need a little bit more of a hand-holding through this process. So we developed a series of three workshops that takes them through some improv, a little bit of stand-up, but mainly we're getting scientists to a point where they can talk about their work and what inspires them about science in a way that everyone can understand and in a way that's engaging and hopefully even amusing. I'd have to imagine that going through this process, scientists participating in in doing stand-up probably also has a side benefit of helping them become better communicators in their day job. Exactly. Yes, that's the main goal, to get the science communication um, aspect. So we want to both educate and entertain the public, but also train the scientists to be communicators. And the product that we get at the end varies a lot by individual. So some scientists can really take the bull by the horns. <laughs> That's a very kind way of saying that. <laughs> I will say that every I would say that everyone has been successful. Some scientists can really make a joke and make a comedy set. Other ones, myself included, I'm I can't really write one liners that well, but they learn how to talk about their science in an interesting way to the general public and just tell a good story, an amusing story. One of the performances that we got the most feedback on, positive feedback from the audience, actually didn't get 
that many laughs compared to some of the others, but was just so fascinating and engaging to listen to. And that's really the main goal. So you, what you hope is that by making this a comedic endeavor or by bringing it kind of down to earth, that people will accidentally engage with the science, that will, they will come to learn something about the scientific process or about your specific research and not see it as a dry dissertation on some boring egghead's work. Right. The more that you can relate it to things that everyone knows, the more impactful it'll be. And that's kind of what happens in the workshops as well. A lot of it is just talking to each other about science. We get six to eight STEM professionals, so anything from science to math, engineering, together so we really don't know that much about our own individual fields either during this process. So we can really say, oh, hey, I didn't understand what that means. How about you say this this way? And then um, everyone together in the workshop kind of helps and gives feedback. And connecting the science, the technical things, to other things that are more well-known or relatable is also something that we focus on. So can you make any comparisons to pop culture? or some feeling in an average individual's day-to-day life. Can you connect the feelings that you experience in your job and with science to something that everyone can understand? So in a sense, people are practicing their routines and they're getting, they're getting feedback from, from their peers. Right. We start workshop one just talking in general about what we may want our set to be about or just what our jobs are and get feedback about what is interesting, what might be humorous. And then slowly over the next two workshops, the STEM professionals participating will kind of write out their set, perform it in front of the workshop crowd, and then get feedback from everyone else in the workshop. And we usually have a comedian or two also helping out. To oh, so actually someone who is a comedian, a professional As comedian. As a funny person. <laughs> yes. Yes, we, we do get get those people involved as well. And then we and put them in the lab good. for a week and have the comedian <laughs> act as a scientist for a week. Which, like a which might be more... Program. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I need an example of something that might be funny in science because I'm, I'm trying to... I, I'm, I'm following you. I understand where you're headed, but I don't know that I can think of anything particularly laughable, although my scientific experience was not funny. But I don't know. Well... I'm a microbiologist, so poop jokes are okay, great, yeah. easy, you know. Um, my my four-year-old would love this. This is his favorite topic. We're targeting adults. So we make sure that our shows are 18 and over so that scientists can say whatever they want. And one of my favorite kind of bits was, I think the scientist, I forget what area of study the scientist was in, but he was his joke was, he was talking about fecal transplant. So if you want to get your microbiome back on track, you get a fecal transplant for someone with a healthy microbiome. And he says, I've always wanted to do this, and I've always hoped that my brother would need a fecal transplant so that I could tell him to eat <laughs> Nice. <laughs> well, That's funny. You know, when I was doing my very first lab rotation in graduate school, I worked in a gonorrhea lab, and we had all kinds of great jokes. We would often say, I don't have gonorrhea, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Everything you, you would want printed on a T-shirt on your yeah. in your lab. Yeah. And the other one we'd say is the gonorrhea lab, the only place where you wash your hands before you go to the bathroom. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm ready. I got a whole uh, got, got a whole set, set. right here. That was two we whole had jokes. A grad student, 
who studied fly sex. That was the raunchiest one we've had so far, but very funny. <laughs> but I imagine it, it holds people's attention. Yes. <laughs> in the audience. So who are these these people who participate in this? So so I know they're all STEM professionals, but mm-hmm. but are there certain genres of reasons that that people look you up, come to the peer review and want to do this. They must self-select. You can, you're not forcing people to do this, right? Yeah, I'm curious. What's the motivation yeah. people have? Because I also know, uh, and people I think have studied If you want this. to graduate, you will yeah. do a peer review show. You learn to laugh at yourself and your situation. I know a lot of scientists tend to be very introverted. And I also know working with a lot of, of trainees and going through it myself, public speaking is a, something that makes a lot of people nervous. So it seems like this would be a really big step for a lot of people to take. So um, what reasons do you hear people give for for coming to you to to get involved in the peer review? So most of our STEM professionals who go through this uh, sign up after attending a show. They see how wonderful it is and how much everyone laughs. And some people want to just push themselves to try something new. That's probably the number one reason I get. They've never done something like this and they want to put themselves out there and try it. Some people have done it to get over their stage fright, and we've actually had pretty good success with that. We had one participant who almost didn't get on stage the night of the event because they were so worried and got so scared. And during their set, they actually kind of lost their spot and were tripping over their words. And then the crowd started applauding and cheering to support them. And so they made it through their set, and they actually did an encore performance a month or so later and got through it all and improved on their public speaking skills. So it's like a safe space to be able to try this out. And I agree with you. If, if you are practicing your improv or your public speaking or anything like this, you are going to be better the next time and the time after that and the time after that. Right. So right now the shows that we do in Colorado and Denver and Colorado Springs are either hosted by the Denver Science Museum or we have kind of the mailing list in support of uh, science people in Colorado Springs. So our first shows are playing to the home crowd. People who are naturally inclined to enjoy science would be on those mailing lists and go. We would like to branch out and try to get into more comedy clubs and other spaces that maybe wouldn't be the home crowd to educate other people further about science. That could be a little scary for our STEM professionals. So the idea is to have your first show be in the home crowd. And then if you feel brave enough to branch out and do an encore somewhere else. Josh, I don't know. This is a a sidetrack kind of, but I recall in our very first um, year, we were part of a program with a cohort of students that all got together and we had to do some kind of short talk right at the beginning. And, and one of the, the talks, I don't know if you remember this, um, this particular individual was very, very type A and she had scripted and memorized every word she was going to say on each of her slides. And it was, it was perfectly delivered, perfectly uh, executed until the moment she lost her place. And it's just like what you were saying. She could not get back onto her script. And, you know, as the embarrassment rises, her ability to get back onto her script fails. And I think there you know, aside from the, the, the fear and anxiety that that, that caused her, it's less engaging, right? I, d- I don't want to sit and hear somebody recite. 
I want to have a conversation and, and, a, and a person who can stand up on a stage and make each individual feel like you're welcome in and that you're a warm personality and that you are speaking like a human being. That's it's such a different experience, even for a science talk, I think. Can you tell me what to do? So I, I kind of consider it a sin to write too many jokes, like to script too many jokes into a prepared presentation. Right. Um, but every once in a while, I, I give in to the temptation. What do you do when you deliver the laugh line and it's just crickets? You just pretend like nothing is amiss and keep going, I would say. <laughs> if you don't draw attention to the problem, you can get past it, I think. Yeah, some of, I actually really like stand-up comedy. That's something that, that I like to go go do if I visit a city or, or even around here. Uh, and sometimes you'll see the, the, the comics who do a good job if they if the joke falls flat then they'll use the fact it fell flat to then get a laugh right yeah. after the fact yeah. and, and and we've seen both sides of that i think the crowd has so much to do with it if the crowd is not into it if they're not warmed up quote unquote then it's really tough to be the first person out on that stage i was so i was looking at your website and you've mentioned Colorado Springs and Denver. It looked mm-hmm. like there might have been been one other site also. But are there plans in the works to expand the peer review beyond Colorado, maybe into other cities or, or towns in the United States or elsewhere? Yes, definitely. So both Kyle and I have recently moved away from Colorado Springs. Kyle moved to Little Rock. So he's having his first Little Rock show in a week or two. And I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania. So I'm hoping to bring peer review to Erie or maybe Pittsburgh. Um, I'm just in the preliminary stages of figuring that all out. And we're also hoping to get the word out about peer review so that whoever thinks this is a good idea will want to take it on and put on an event themselves. We have a very detailed workbook for future producers and for the participants of the workshop. We have everything laid out, how an event should go, how you can best put on an event. And both Kyle and I are available to um, kind of guide new producers through it. And we are linked up with a nonprofit that Kyle and I started called Science Riot. And so we have funds that we can get a new producer started. And then the money that is made off of that show will then go back into the nonprofit. And we can keep cycling this around. So if we have anyone listening to the show now who's thinking, wow, this sounds so amazing. I would love to do this where I am. Um, you would like for them to get in contact with you to, to discuss possibly doing that. Yes, absolutely. They can go to our website, peer-review.com, P-E-E-R-R-E-V-U-E.com. Yeah, and we will, we will put the, the link to that website in the show notes who knows, Dan? Maybe maybe you and I should host one of these here in the Triangle. I feel like we do this every couple of weeks, Josh. It's just a laugh riot in the studio. You know, when we tell all these jokes on the show, it's just us here, and I always imagine yeah. the roaring laughter as people are driving to work or at, at the tissue culture hood. Yeah, you don't look over at me groaning, no, no, or rolling your eyes. That's true. Well, this has been this has been great, Nikki, and uh, thanks for taking some time to to talk to us. I'm really excited about this. All right. Nice talking to you, too. Thanks. And we'll talk to you soon. Make science funny again. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Dan, I have a question for you. Back when you were in the lab, you were coming through grad school, I imagine you went and saw a lot of scientific talks. So many talks. 
how many of them were so dreadfully boring that they lost you within five minutes? I really wanted to take crossword puzzles to scientific talks, and I didn't because I felt guilty. That's that's where I was. You know, this is something I think a lot about. You're at a, a research institution, bring these faculty in from other places, and they give their talks or, or postdocs give talks or students. This work that they're presenting, a panel of experts decided this research is good enough. We're going to give millions of dollars to do it. So it all must be pretty important. It's amazing. It really is. I, I you know, I mentioned I got to go to a symposium recently, and the work is fascinating. But after the first hour of listening to it, it's just really hard to keep your attention focused on the volume of new information that's coming at you, um, particularly if it's not your field. So I would have welcomed some kind of human interaction or some kind of uh, humor or, I don't know, just something to to bring it back into the room and, and not just up on the screen. Yeah, and anytime I'm in a room during a scientific talk and I look around and I see three-fourths of the audience totally zoned out. And these are all scientists, right? Especially the faculty. Yeah, I think how much wasted brain power and opportunity oh, yeah. is this? I used to I used to try and do the math on the number of human work hours that were being wasted. Uh, just just at a talk that um, maybe, maybe there was some value there, but it was buried and nobody was paying attention. And therefore, no matter how great it was, they weren't getting it. Yeah, and we've talked... Uh, a few times about the importance of outreach and the importance of scientists being able to communicate what they do and why it's important to the public. Because most of this work is really cool and uh, does have some really interesting implications to the lives of human beings in general. But a lot of times as scientists, we miss those opportunities because either we're not trained to be good communicators or we don't put much energy and investment into that part of it. So when I heard about, as we were talking to, to Nikki, I thought, wow, this could be a really, this is a really innovative way, a really unique way to not only connect with the public, but to help scientists become better communicators of their work. Yeah, I was skeptical of this combination, this mashup, but I think she sold me on it. Seems like fun. What do you think, Dan? Should we, uh, should we start one of these? I mean, my dissertation was funny, but in a dark comedy way, <laughs> as in it wasn't funny at all. I really do hope that if anybody out there thinks this is cool... They might get in touch with, with Nikki and get this started. And if you do, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. And if you have any good science material, maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll do like a podcast comedy hour or something. I would love it. All right, Dan. Got a word of the week for us? I always do. The clue last week was, if there's a nibble on the line, reel it in. You may catch this genus of hook-nosed river fish. You do much river fishing, Josh? Yeah, I grew, fly up, fisherman yeah, I grew up doing uh, quite a bit of river fishing. I'm trying to think what kind of hook-nosed fish we had. The only thing I could think of was uh, uh, we did have some, some gar. Oh, I don't know what gar comes from. That's what I wasn't looking for was gar. Uh, we used to catch a lot of largemouth bass, smallmouth bass. And they're river fish or not pond fish? Uh, oh, the smallmouth bass actually were the river fish. We'd like to announce the new podcast, Hello Fish. Hello. Where we just sit and talk about fish. <laughs> Hello fish. I, Hello actually, fish. I don't know if these, if this type of fish is local to our area. You'll have to tell me. Okay. The answer was uh, trout, but, but the genus is Oncorhinus. Oh, you know, I used to catch a lot of trout. Okay. In the river. Which, which type? Uh, rainbow trout, uh, brook trout. 
Those were the main two that I caught. There you go. Uh, Uncle Rhinus comes from the Greek Ankos, which is hook, and Rhinos, which is nose. Uncle Rhinus was... He was... Not Uncle. Uncle. <laughs> he was a good man. <laughs> Uncle Rhinus. <laughs> Always had a beard Say in his it hand. with my Virginia accent. Yeah. <laughs> Pour one out for Uncle Rhinus. <laughs> um, I, I added a second clue in there. The word trout actually means one that nibbles or, or nibbler. Um, from the the root trojean. So uh, there you go. Well, actually, you know, if you have you been fishing for trout before? I have not. So compared compared to like a bass, for example, that's a very aggressive fish that will attack the lure, or the bait. Uh, the trout really is more of a, a finesse or a, a, a nibbling fish. That's true. And you will never forget this now. No, I no, hope that's yeah. great. Okay, our winner this week was Danielle from Berkeley, and so Danielle will be sending you an Amazon gift card. All right. Congrats, Danielle. Thanks for playing. Okay. Let me give you the clue for next week. This term once described cave-dwelling prehistoric people, but now it refers to someone with backward or antiquated views. Read it one more time. This term once described cave-dwelling prehistoric people, but now it refers to someone with backward or antiquated views. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. And a trout. <laughs> That'd be pretty neat. Do <laughs> you think anybody would play anymore if we sent a trout? I don't know. Well, I don't know if it depends. Is it like a dried No, like a, a, a rotting a... male trout. Well, it wasn't rotting when we sent it. No, but in the mail it would definitely be <laughs> rotting. All right, Dan, this has been a great episode. I enjoyed talking to Nikki. enjoyed our field trip to try a new beer. If you, our listener, have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can leave us a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. It makes us very, very happy. Also, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would love the beer money. I wanted to say thanks to some of our ongoing support from Arlen, Jada, and Peter. Thanks for your continued support. Thanks, y'all. Happy Halloween, Dan. You got your costume ready? Uh, I do not have a costume ready, but I'll go work on it. Uh, my kids are going to be Mario and Luigi, and I'm going to be a Nintendo controller. Old school. I, I have to see this. <laughs> we'll put a picture up. Sounds good. Happy Halloween, Dan. Happy Halloween. We'll see you next time. My thesis was about this growing divide between scientists and the public, uh, what's known as the science gap. Like your grandmother's racism on Facebook, it's getting worse. (laughs) But I want to share my research with you anyways, because the question I was really trying to ask is, where did science communication go wrong, you know, and how can we fix this? Uh, But that led me down this whole other rabbit hole, like, what is science? Where did science come from? Who invented the Bunsen burner? (laughs) Plot twist, Michael Faraday. (laughs) So to get to the answers, we have to go all the way back to 1650s England. Now, this was not a nice place for scholars. And by the way, this sounds like total bullshit. It is true. Every Thursday, they're like, let's get together and talk about philosophy. And they would just bring their latest DIY life hack. And the rule was you had to come and do your experiment 
in person. Or you had to describe it so well that anybody else could repeat it. Now, this did two things. It technically created the first peer-reviewed academic journal. But more importantly, it just led to some really awesome parties. Like, these guys were super popular. They were rock stars in London. By 1660, the who's who of aristocracy was coming every Thursday to watch Boyle kill animals slowly in a jar. <laughs> they didn't know if it, like, do guinea pigs need air? Do mice need air? Like, this is what people did before Netflix. That was it. That was the invention of modern science. The Royal Society of London for the Investigation of Natural Knowledge. The Royal Society, still going. It wasn't something that anyone planned. There was no rational thought put into it. It just happened. I'm going to let it sink in because I know you're all trying to absorb this. It's kind of like talking to your parents and finding out you were an accident. <laughs> we got a little drunk and we named you science. Science. 